Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox the podcast in search of answers to questions large and small. Today, human beings' long relationship with trees. A relationship that is practical, certainly, but also aesthetic, artistic, spiritual, sometimes even mystical. As guide, we have Fiona Stafford, whose book, The Long, Long Life of Trees, has recently appeared in paperback from Yale University Press. In it, she looks at 17 species of tree and the part they have played and continue to play in human culture. Fiona is Professor of English at Oxford University and her love of trees dates back at least as far as her love of books. So I began by asking, was she an outdoorsy child as well as a bookish one? Yes, I was always outdoors, actually. I suppose it started with just being out in the garden. uh, But as soon as I was old enough to be beyond the garden than I was and my parents moved quite a lot when I was a child so we were very often in a new environment and I always liked exploring and and, and see, seeing what was there so I've, I've always been out of doors as much as possible actually which seems a bit surprising for someone who's a, who's a writer and a lecturer. And do you remember when you began to get a little bit more interested in trees as you say in the book to children trees are really just well they're things to climb and if you're portraying them they're sticks with blobs on the top but do you remember when you began to become interested in in trees in a bit more um, subtle way? It was probably when uh, we moved into a house where we lived for several years, which was right in the middle of a wood. It was a very small hamlet in the Lincolnshire Wolds, and it was surrounded by woods. And because originally, um, I think some of the woods had been planted, there were very distinct differences in different parts of the woods. So you were very aware that there was um, an avenue of yew trees, or there was a park uh, with oak trees in. So it was probably then that I became more aware of the differences between the, between the trees. How would you sort of characterise your main interest? It's not really principally a botanist's interest, it's more a sort of cultural historian, literary historian. How would you sort of um, characterise that? Yes, it's definitely not a professional botanist's interest. Um, I'm not at all good on DNA and that, and that kind of thing. But then I always think that you don't actually have to be a trained medic to write something about people. <laughs> so there are other ways of approaching natural phenomena. Um, so yes, I'm very interested in it from a cultural historical point of view. I'm interested in how trees figure in literature and how writers and artists have responded to trees. But I'm also interested in them as characters, really, um, which may sound a bit strange, but because 
all different species of trees have very distinctive characters, physical and cultural. And then within those big species, you have individual trees that might have particular importance in a local area or to a particular writer. It's those kind of accumulated meanings that I'm I'm very interested in, as, as well as in the sort of, I retain that physical wonder whenever I see, see trees in, in, in sunlight, really. Now, it must have been difficult to arrive at your list of 17 featured trees. Some, I guess, are almost self-selecting, but tell me how you went about giving a, a good mixture of different sorts and stories. Well, as you probably know, the book grew out of a number of series of essays I was writing for the for Radio 3 on the meaning of trees. And because those were going to be broadcast each night, it was good to have a variety of different kinds of trees. So an evergreen, a fruit tree, a broadleaf, whatever. So that was part of the thinking to give, give variety. Um, but there were also trees that I thought had distinctive characters and had cultural meanings perhaps that people wouldn't necessarily be aware of. A tree like the rowan tree, for example, lots of people will have them in their street but not really think of them. Well, that's a bit patronising. Obviously, some people will be thinking about them but quite a lot of people will just be going past on the bus and not realising that this is a tree with enormous importance in Scottish culture, for example. So I like the idea of focusing on trees that are ordinary in inverted commas but aren't ordinary at all because you're recovering a lot of that lore which our ancestors would have been entirely familiar with it would have given shape to to some of their lives and a lot of it is is gone really isn't it apart from in the in the books Certainly receding, <laughs> hopefully not gone com- gone completely. Um, and yes, this this was one of the reasons that um, prompted me to 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 write the book. Actually, it was when I was reading novels by Hardy, for example, and he would be just referring to different kinds of wood in a very relaxed way, but also a very specific way. So he would know exactly which kind of wood you use for different things and why in the woodlanders people were doing, they were planting trees at certain times. And I, I and when I read those novels, I thought, my goodness me, this is something that was obviously just completely common knowledge and really doesn't seem to be now. Yeah, that, that cultural resonance is something yeah. which you can tell that from, from writers you quote. Mm. When they mention a particular kind of tree, they would presumably be expecting the the reader to have a lot of cultural associations with that kind of tree. Cultural associations, but also practical associations. They they would just assume that people knew what that kind of wood was for and where they would where they would see it in their daily lives. It, it's not just esoteric law or anything. It, it was just just part of life. Um, it's, it's knowing what kind of wood is good for making a particular thing, what, what character, exactly. if, whether it's going to be resilient or pliant or it's going to rot quickly or, or whatever. That's right. Or whether it's going to be more water resistant than something else. So all of those amazing uses of wood, which I, I think are very interesting. And, and this is this is one of the things that um, I hope people are already beginning to realise that as we're trying to move to a more sort of sustainable economy, some of these woods could be revived for purposes that we've just routinely been using plastic for, but for maybe the last kind of half century, we could actually return to using willow more for things. So the book's not, it's not nostalgic exactly. In fact, I hope it's not nostalgic at all. Um, It's looking to the past because that's so interesting, but also uh, thinking about what we can learn from from that for uh, as we face kind of the challenges of the 21st century. And you mentioned some interesting projects, don't you, along the way where people are trying to 
I suppose just bring to uh, bring to our attention the the value of trees, the diversity of trees, all the ways in which we can and do interact with trees. Yes, exactly, um, and they they are important in all sorts of different ways. I mean, there, there are other kind of practical things you can you can make out of, say, willow, but they also have a contribution to play um, in our urban lifestyle. You know, they're very good for improving air quality. So, so with the recent concern about polluted cities, it's a bit frustrating to see that on one page of the paper and then on the other page, a story about councils chopping down <laughs> existing roadside trees. So, so I think a little bit of joined up thinking will be really helpful. When it comes to sort of the aesthetic appreciation of trees, is that something that really gets going with the romantics? You quote the Wordsworths quite a lot in the book. Was that when writers and artists really began to sit up and take notice of the sort of aesthetic properties of individual trees? Yes, I think it was. I think it was part of uh, a a general movement uh, across Europe um, to appreciate nature and get inspiration from the natural world, which we associate with with romanticism. But there was also um, another kind of related movement going on, um, which was people landscaping their big estates and thinking about the aesthetics of them. So so they were thinking still in terms of oak and elm and ash as, as timber, but they were also more concerned uh, than they had been perhaps in the past with with making their their estates look look good and there's a lot of interest in that in the 18th century so so that's another quite important stimulus for this and and especially as they were people who had the money to to buy paintings and commission paintings so it's more complicated than just everybody goes out and and feels emotive under a tree there's a number of different things going on I think in that period and in the 18th century is that when the first as it were, portraits of individual trees rather than trees simply as a, as a backdrop were commissioned? And, what, and if so, what, what, what were the people who were commissioning those sort of symbolising by commissioning a portrait of a, tr- a particular tree? Uh, yes, that's when, when the first tree portraits as such were commissioned. And I think they were status symbols. I, I think people were very, very proud of their trees. I mean, oak trees especially were kind of symbols of, of, of strength, but also uh, of kind of patriotism as well, because Britain at this stage still depended on its navy, which was consisted of oak-built ships. Um, something like 2,000 mature oaks were needed for a, a big ship like the victory. So um, there was a patriotic aspect to it, but also a, a, a sort of local status symbol as well. Your book is entitled The Long, Long Life of Trees, and the longevity of trees is clearly something that humans have always reckoned with, that, that consciousness that the trees return to leaf, but and they last for many, many years, and they outlive human beings. And that, as you say in the book, is is sometimes quite a troubling thought for human beings to to grapple with. So it's it's not simply a matter of trees being things that we revere. They, I guess, they make us think in in a particular way about our own place in the in the cosmos. I think they do. And if you take something like a yew tree that can last maybe for four thousand years, it makes our lifespans seem very small indeed. And that was something um, that was very troubling to Tennyson at one stage in his life when he was devastated by the loss of his his close friend, Arthur Hallam, who, who died in his 20s. Tennyson was very troubled by the image of this ancient yew in the graveyard. And, and, and that sort of what he felt at that time was a very unjust disparity. But then I think as he thought more about it, he actually began to find some comfort in this kind of stability and, and the sense of 
life life going on, which is, I think, what a lot of people do find. I mean, I find the idea of yew trees in churchyards interesting. They have all sorts of symbolic associations, but I think one of them is is to make people think long term, especially now, actually. So so much of our, our life is concerned with what's just happened, the latest tweet or, or whatever. So the idea of actually taking stock and thinking about something that, that lasts really for hundreds and hundreds of years and will carry on in the same place, I think there is something actually quite reassuring about about that. And yet then, the, then there's that additional layer of complexity in that a tree can be there for centuries and then suddenly you get a severe storm and it's gone. It's over, overnight it's, it's felled. And that, that also must add to this sort of dimension about thinking about trees and thinking about their place and our place in the world. Yes, I think that the sudden crash fall of, of an enormous tree can be very, very disturbing. I mean, John Clare writes some very moving poems about the fallen elm, for example. So, so there is that kind of dramatic quality and that uncertainty. And, and, and trees, in some ways, are reassuring because we think they live a very long time. And yet they are prone to all kinds of diseases. So they may not be going to live as long as we think think and that and that's that's worrying and also it's important to remember that um, not all trees live for hundreds of years there are some species that do and, and others that are relatively short-lived so that that's another thing to think about really but the the idea of of trees being short-lived and yet their descendants carrying on is something that people relate to I think very personally as well. And you point out in the book that often we really only value trees properly when they're under threat or perhaps when they're gone and the threat can be can be man-made it can be from developers or or someone who's who's clearing a landscape. Yes and and that's often when trees become most high profile um, when there is a big protest going on so that is something that I think surprises people into realising that they do feel strongly about trees when they may not have been even noticing them for, for a long time. So we do have a very sort of strong relationship with trees that's often unconscious, I think. Tell me about researching the book. Do you plan your, your travels or do you make lots of side trips? You know, if you're going to a conference in Liverpool, do you think, what, what trees can I take in? How, and how do you select the trees that you're actually going to, to go and see? Yeah, that's exactly what I, I do. And I have a, a long-suffering family who are used to me saying, oh, well, as we're going to this wedding in the Bracken Beacons, there is a very interesting yew tree that I'd really like to stop off and, and, and see. So, um, How are you sort of identifying the ones you want to go and see? Are they references in literature or you're seeing things on websites? Or I, I guess there have, been, there have been attempts to sort of map out significant trees, haven't there, in the UK at various, at various times in the recent past. So is, is that, does, that, does that provide you with your map? That's one of the things. Um, there are very good websites. The Woodland Trust is very is very good on 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 trees. There's the Ancient Tree Forum. There's lots and lots of websites, but also lo- lots of books. So a lot of the trees I go and hunt out, I've read about them in books, or I've read a poem about them. For example, Wordsworth's poem "Yew Trees" that took me to the Lawton Yew, and then it took me to the Borrowdale Yews in the Lake District. So it's often that I've I've read about trees. So I've known about them imaginatively for a long time before I see them often. But sometimes I just happen upon them by chance. And that's very, that's exciting as, as well. But usually I'm going with a particular tree in mind or group of group of trees in mind. But that, that's two um, ancient and important trees. I mean, 
I'm also very interested in what, again, what people call ordinary trees and in inverted commas. So any woodland really or a London park or an ordinary street will give you examples of amazing trees there's some fantastic plane trees near the Tate so I was going to the Paul Nash exhibition just after Christmas and I was just completely diverted by these amazing amazing tree shapes en route between the Pimlico tube and and, and the Tate once you start thinking about trees your life is just immeasurably enriched though it does mean you're often a bit late for things Um, and do you take photographs because it's quite hard taking a good photograph of trees or do you do you kind of internalize the and 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 jot down some notes afterwards how do you sort of record that experience i do i do both if i'm out with the dogs it's very difficult taking photos because i've got a lead in each hand being pulled about but if i'm on my own and i happen to have my phone with me then i do often take a photo uh, as much as an aid memoir as as anything else i mean if i'm on a long train journey i'm always looking out the window looking at looking at trees and looking at the colors and it's surprising how much of the book you know was written on a train actually oh well trains bring me very nicely to to the sycamore and problem trees because you you say in the book that sycamore is the main culprit for leaves on the line the bane of of commuters in the in the autumn so it's not the case that, that we revere all trees or all trees are equally prized. The sycamore is one of those problem trees, isn't it? It's, it's kind of prolific, it sprouts, and then its, it's wretched leaves <laughs> get onto the line. Yes, it is. But that's, um, that's, that's locally specific. I mean, that is certainly quite a widespread attitude towards the sycamore. But then there are other parts of, of these islands, if you're further north, where sycamore is the only thing that can grow, perhaps, on an exposed hillside or on a coastline. And then, you know, they're, they're glorious trees, actually. So, so that was one of the things I wanted to bring out, that there are these different attitudes to trees. Um, and and I, I wanted to, not to make it a kind of sentimental book, because just because I like trees a lot of I know lots of people have very good reasons for not liking trees for, for all sorts of reasons and you know that they, they can be the cause of de- uh, fatal accidents and things so uh, I know people have ambivalent feelings about about trees um, so so I wanted to include uh, adverse attitudes to trees as well they're the classic cause of disputes between neighbors aren't they and light and yeah, and, oh, and, and so on and, and roots coming up and draining the soil oh Leylandi cypress um, trees have caused all kinds of uh, neighbourly disputes. And I suppose the very idea of, of planting trees that you know are going to get big and jolly well block out your next door neighbours, that, that in itself is laying the, laying the seeds for, for a few problems in years to come, I think. So, so, so that's something that interests me as well. I mean, again, it's just as much part of our relationship with trees as knowing that the ancient Greeks used to listen to Zeus's commands through the rustle of oak leaves. I mean, uh, it's a very, very diverse um, subject, I think. Fiona Stafford. The Long, Long Life of Trees is out now in paperback from Yale University Press. You can find out more about it on their website. And do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.